So in February 2016, Sir Ken Robinson stepped onto the TED stage and delivered the most viewed talk in the history of TED entitled, Do Schools Kill Creativity? Viewed by more than 66 million people, Sir Ken called on us to re-examine how we learn and to encourage every kid, every person, to seek out the myriad unique ways that intelligence shows up in every one of our lives and then honor and build around it to reimagine and even revolutionize the way we see each person's gift, their brilliance, and to create opportunities that nurture it, even if that means blowing up the rigid systems that serve some, but also utterly demoralize and sometimes even demonize others. He devoted his entire adult life to creating and stoking the fires of a global creativity and education revolution. I had the amazing gift of sitting down with him in the studio a number of years back to not only explore his ideas, but also his deeply moving personal story. Growing up in post-World War II Liverpool, a fiercely active kid who loved soccer or what he would call football and hoped to even one day play professionally, his dreams were cut short when he got polio at the age of only four forever changing the course of his life, as he described only months before the polio vaccine would come out, leaving him with physical disabilities and exposing him to the profound injustice that awaits so many kids labeled as different. His experience as a kid, really in no small part, became the source fuel for his unrelenting devotion to recognizing and celebrating and supporting how each child, each person, needs to come into themselves in their own unique way. I was profoundly moved, not only by his work, but by his lens on life and family and creativity and service and the story that he told in the way he lived his life. You may notice that I have been speaking about him in the past tense. That is because the world lost Sir Ken Robinson to cancer just a few days ago, and it felt like a good time to reach back into our archives, to share this deeply moving conversation with you as both a tribute and a provocation to explore how we all show up in the world and how we commit to doing work and making meaning. Really excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You grew up, from my understanding, in 1950s, 60s Liverpool, so kind of post-war, which, which is also a pretty interesting time in Liverpool. Yeah, I was born in 1950 in Liverpool. And it was it was a uh, it was a city that had been devastated in the Second World War. I mean, in the middle of the nineteenth century, Liverpool was the probably the most important port in the world. Something like sixty percent of world trade went through the port of Liverpool. It was the height of empire. I didn't realize it was that much. Wow! Height of the British Empire, and it was the main point of entry for all the goods that were coming from. The southern states to feed the the mills of, of Lancashire. Mm. It was the height of the Industrial Revolution, so it was a huge import-export trade. It was the point of departure to the United States and, uh, and also to far-flung parts of the empire. Uh, if you had been around Liverpool in the mid to late 19th century, you'd have found this bustling port, huge wealth, great open parklands, magnificent houses, and you know a metropolis great cosmopolitan centre. Uh, when I was born in 1950, it was none of that. You know, the the docks were pretty much faltering. The mm. uh, the passenger ships weren't going from there anymore. There was international air travel and the empire had collapsed. So, and we'd right. been battered by the Luftwaffe. So we grew up literally playing in bomb craters and you know, in the austerity of post-war Britain where food was rationed and we had uh, high levels of unemployment, poverty. You know, I'm one of seven kids and uh, my dad had been unemployed for a long time because of the situation generally in Liverpool. Mm. I, I, I was talking recently to my own kids about their life. You know that that as children, you've no real grasp of what's going through your parents' minds. Mm. We we had a great childhood, so far as we were concerned. You know, we grew up playing in the streets of Liverpool. Uh, we didn't ever feel poor. We ate every day. We. <laughs> We had a great family. My dad was one of five kids, so we had lots of family on his side, and you know, cousins and uncles. My mum was one of seven. In her case, six girls and a boy. Oh, so you had a giant family. Giant family, yeah. <laughs> when we gathered together, there were, seemed to be hundreds of us stretching yeah. in all directions. And, and Liverpool's a very funny place. I mean, I largely remember growing up amid laughter and good times. And But, of course, we knew later on that my parents you know, were coping with all the problems you have coming from, you know, with unemployment and, and a bad economy. Yeah. But they, they didn't let us know about it. Had you, did you ever go back and, and speak to them about what it was like for them at that time? I'm curious. Yeah. Well, the thing is that I say I was, I was born 1950 and a couple of things happened uh, that were big turning points. One was that uh, in 1954, I got polio, which was endemic at the time. You know, there was mm. a a massive uh, international crisis around the spread of polio virus. So I got it around the time that Salk came up with a vaccine, but not quite in time. Right. Mm -hmm. And until then, my father was convinced I was going to be the soccer player in the family. We grew up right next door to Everton's football ground, which is mm -hmm. one of the main teams in the country, still is. And so he was convinced I was going to be the soccer player. 
So I was, yeah, I was strong and fast and, and he told me later on I had you know, a great sense of ball control and he thought this is the one. Really? In fact, my youngest brother, Neil, eventually went on to be the professional soccer player oh, no, in the family. Yeah, and played for Everton. But in fact, he and my brother John were both taken on by the team. Neil persisted with it. John liked the life of it less. So, yeah, so I got polo and that was you know, devastating for the family. Uh, I mean, as a kid, you're not aware of how devastating it is, but you, I mean, I can imagine now, was, I spoke to them about it later on, you can imagine your own four-year-old kid completely paralysed and stretched out oh, yeah. in a bed surrounded by sandbags. And you go overnight from being perfectly fit to being completely wiped out. And some kids didn't make it at all. So I was in hospital for eight months and it came out on two braces and in a wheelchair and crutches. And uh, I was tremendously cute, I have to say. People, <laughs> offered me money spontaneously in the street. <laughs> um, so that was a big thing, obviously, for the whole family. I was the only, the only one in the whole family to get it. Uh, so that was bad for them. I remember one year, actually, a friend of my dad's, a guy called Stan Rankin, saved the day. I mean, it was, it was Dickensian, this particular thing, that um, Stan had done very well. He had his own haulage business. And my dad had been a professional soccer player himself. He'd run pubs and had been very successful. But then the war intervened and uh, he was being offered the, to be the manager of this very successful pub. But he was then passed over by the Brewers in favour of uh, a well-known soccer player who was looking to manage a pub. So my dad ended up uh, working as a docker, longshoreman. And... Uh, but there was a whole period of unemployment there and, St and Christmas was looming and literally on Christmas Eve, this guy, Stan Rankin, showed up at the house with a big hamper full of food, you know, with the turkey and presents for us. Yeah. There hadn't been anything. They were just wondering what, how they were going to get through Christmas Day and he showed up with it all. Mm -hmm. So it really was like a Father Christmas thing. So I don't exaggerate it, but it wasn't that we lived in ab abject poverty, but it was difficult for them. You know, we... Uh, we weren't as aware of it, but but it was it was hard for them. And then uh, in 1959, my dad was back at work and he had an industrial accident. He was working as a steel erector, and he broke his neck. Oh, so he was completely paralysed. Wow. But he was a quadriplegic. He was paralysed from the neck down. Went out to work one morning. Uh, this wooden beam they were working on fell uh, 30 feet. The rope snapped and it broke his neck. Oh my god. So he is the age of 45. So with seven kids and just back in work, he and my mum suddenly found themselves completely devastated. And it, it wasn't expected he would survive the night. He did. And uh, he went on to live for another 18 years, but as a quadriplegian. Right. So, um, I mean, even so, my recollection of it all was that we had great times as a family. But... I'm older now than my dad was when he died. He was died at 63. And, you know, with having kids, you become, of course, much more attuned to what they must have been going through. Because, you know, to a, even at whatever age you are, really, up until you have kids, your parents are just your parents. They're a facility. Mm. You don't really think of them having actual feelings and issues yes. they're dealing with, which it, are I think it's anything almost, approaching your own complications. Right. I think it's almost like until you actually, you know, if and when you become a parent yourself and you start to understand 
sort of like that the shift that happens then all of a sudden i think there's this something opens there's a channel that opens where there's a level of understanding and reconnection i, I think it's no question it would have been you know even when my dad was lying in bed you know, paralyzed we would still argue with him because mm. it didn't affect his mind it, it, in, in a structural way i mean he was we just argue with him because i was a teenager you know and i, yeah. and I was a student <laughs> and and what did he know Right, and the same arguments any teenager would have with the parent. Yeah. Absolutely, and we all did. We just took him on. Fortunately, he was very funny, very smart, uh, witty, mm. and remarkably strong-minded. And it's, it's what got him. Quadriplegics, for all sorts of obvious reasons, don't have a, a long life expectancy. It's normally nine years or so, people, mm. I'm told. It obviously varies in individual cases, but but one of the reasons is that uh, you know you need to move to keep your body fit, and if you're st if you're just constantly immobilized, your body is working too hard, and so people tend they're prone to things like bladder infections and heart problems right. and just just through immobility, and um, he lived for eighteen years, which was a long time, and partly because he was so determined to. Mm. He was there for us all, and so we never gave him any quarter. You know, he'd be in his wheelchair or in bed, and we'd just take him on. I mean, right. I don't mean it was a constant argument. It wasn't. He was just very funny. But if, you know, if as a teenager I disagreed with him, we'd have the normal hammer and tongs argument <laughs> that you have. And and he died when I was twenty-seven, and you know, I hadn't married at that point, hadn't had children, hadn't published any books. I was living in London, uh, doing a PhD living in a squat with you know, old student friends of mine, you know, with long hair. And I was not Jonathan Lee Swarth, sophisticated, you see, before you know <laughs> I was, I was living this bohemian life in the early 70s in London, a life he couldn't understand at all. And I used to bring people home to the house. Uh, it was like Haight-Ashbury had visited Liverpool. I mean, I don't think mm. he could make any sense of this at all. And, uh, and of course now, uh, you know, I'd love to just have an hour with him. Yeah. Because I understand that look in his eyes now <laughs> that I didn't at the time. You know, that kind of weathered look that you get when you've lived that much longer, you know, and you've done the things that he did and had to cope with the things he did cope with and the and the pressures that were naturally on him and the decisions he had to take. You know, you know as you become a parent, you see it. Yeah, no, everything changes. Mm. Um, I mean, it's interesting, you know, obviously, you know, you're a parent and with what you've ended up devoting much of your life to, um, education and creativity and just schools, you know, coming up in the family the way you did in the family dynamic, at what point do you start to develop an interest? Because if you're 27, you're doing your PhD, um, along the way, were you, have you always been immediately drawn to in some way education, in some way the exploration of how people learn in schools? Or it was this sort of an evolution over time? No, the answer is no, I wasn't. And my parents had a huge role in it. And the reason is that having got polio, um, I was, certainly in terms of my life, it, it's hard to overestimate the implication of that. Well, firstly, I didn't go on to become a professional soccer player. Hmm. I've often said that, you know, that. That, but but for that, I don't know. I may now be running a sports bar in Brooklyn somewhere, you know, showing people my medals. Hopefully, 
the reason I say that is that what made the difference in my life was education. And the reason that happened was that, firstly, after I'd recovered from the, the initial impact of, of the illness, I was then uh, paralyzed myself. You know, my right leg didn't work, still doesn't. Um, left leg was all right. I used to, I mean, we still uh, coyly refer to it as my good leg, you know, but it's, mm -hmm. it's all, all relative, isn't it? It's pretty good. But I went into special ed. And I was in a, a special school. Uh, I mean, they, they were less good at euphemisms then. It was called the, it was called, just called a school for the physically handicapped. Mm. They, they hadn't wrapped it up in anything at that time. So I was there for five, six years. And at the time in the UK, state education, what we call public education in America, was at, at the high school level, was bifurcated. You went to either a grammar school or a secondary modern school. The grammar schools offered an academic curriculum. The secondary modern schools offered a more practically based curriculum. Mm -hmm. And which school you went to was decided at the age of 11 by a short paper and pencil test that you took hmm. called the 11 plus. And it was meant to offer you know, an, an equitable uh, route to people according to their abilities and dispositions. I mean, the theory was that if you were more suited to academic work, you'd go to the grammar school. If you were more suited to you know, blue collar work and technical work, you would go to the secondary modern. And that was the rhetoric. And it was all very well intentioned, but it's all nonsense really, because the fact is the 11 plus was an IQ test of a certain sort. Got it. And if you passed it, you went to the grammar right. school. If you failed it, you went to the secondary modern. It wasn't that you were required to do all kinds of technical things like you know wiring a house or sorting a car out. And right. If you passed it, you went to the secondary. Everyone knew if you went to the secondary modern, it was because they'd failed the test. So in special education, there was no expectation that you would pass this thing. But a couple of people came into my world. And one of them was a man called Charles Strafford, who was, it turns out, was an inspector for special education who visited the school one day and saw something in me. He was talking to me and recommended that I was moved up several classes, and I was. And, uh, and then I came under the uh, influence of this woman, a uh, fantastic teacher called Miss York, who coached me for the 11 plus. So I took the 11 plus and I was the first, I think I'm right in saying this, I was the first uh, kid in that school ever to pass the 11 plus. Hmm. So I, I then went into mainstream state education into the grammar school. So I was on a different track at this point. Right. And, and it's, it's amazing when you think about these points of inflection, yeah. you know, where at, at four, had you not gotten polo, you could have been a professional athlete, you know, at this one window in time, had, yeah. you know, one person not showed up, expressed an interest and seen something in you. And then the second person not showed up and then said, let's prepare you for this test. Yeah. You know, it's, it's. But literally so. I mean, I published a book a few years ago called The Element. Yeah. Finding Your Passion Changes Everything. And I have a whole thing in there about mentors and coaches. And it's true. People sometimes come into your life without whom your life would be on a completely different track. And it's often because they see something in you that you don't see in yourself or they're in a position to make an introduction or to push you in a particular way. And anyway, that happened with me. And I was put on this track. I mean, you, could, you don't have to remember what I'm saying. <laughs> to me, it's worth remembering. 
that at the time, you know, my family, for no reason that they were responsible for, uh, we were living uh, a pretty low-income life. And, uh, and I qualified for welfare support. Nobody else in the family did, but because I'd had the polio, uh, we got some extra support mm. for me. Uh, and I mean, for example, we were able to get an inside bathroom fitted in the house. Previously, it had been at the end of the yard. So, you know, we, would, we weren't um, looking for help from the welfare system, but we qualified for a small amount of it. And, and then my dad had his accident. But the brilliant thing about all this for me was that my dad and mum both recognised, and he used to really drill it into me, that my future depended upon me getting a good education. Mm. When I passed the 11 plus, I went to the grammar school. You know, I mean, I, this was Liverpool, you know, in 1961. The Beatles were playing at the Cavern. The Mersey beat was just getting off the ground. And we were a couple of years away from the British invasion of America. It, Liverpool was a very interesting place to be at that point. And my, one of my brothers was in a rock band and they were rehearsing in the next room. And I was having to do my homework. And, I, and I'm part of a big family. And right. there's constant gale, go. <laughs> constant gales of laughter coming out of the sitting room. You know, My dad got a very small amount of compensation comparatively. And it allowed us to leave this rented house in Liverpool and buy a house on one floor out in the countryside. Uh, and we thought we'd gone to the Ponderosa. Do you remember that? Remember mm, yeah. that television series, Bonanza? We used to call it the Ponderosa. It's about an acre and a quarter of land. And it was a risible amount of money at the time, but it would be very expensive now. But we suddenly got transplanted from central Liverpool into the countryside. And we had a bit more room. It was only because of the small amount of compensation he got. Yeah. It was a lump sum we would never have got before. But anyway, my parents, and particularly my dad, kept drilling me on the need for me to focus on my studies. And I didn't want to. I'm not, I wasn't a natural scholar. I mean, I could do it, but... I'm just more more gregarious than that, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm having all this, all this, all these good times in the front room, and I'm in my bedroom doing my Latin homework. Right, <laughs> and and we clash. Yeah, about I want to it. be in the front room. Yeah, and we clash about it time and again. Uh, come in, and he said, "Have you done your homework?" I said, "Oh, come on." You know. He said, "It matters for you. You've got to do it." He said, "What are you going to do if, if you don't get an education? How are you going to make a living? What, what are you going to do?" You know, he said, "Do you know what dis what kind of work disabled people get?" Which was true at the time. It was absolutely correct advice. He said, "You know, you you will never make a living. Uh, so, so, so what what are you going to do?" So we used to have these, not all the time, you know, but it was a it was a theme. He kept me at it and kept pushing me, and I'm tremendously grateful that he did. But uh, you know, I, I eventually did get through it all, and then I went to uh, a fantastic place called Bretton Hall College, where I trained as a teacher and took a degree in education and got formally interested in the philosophy and theory and practice of education. Mm -hmm. um, and I can look back and rationalize it now and say it's because, because, but it wasn't that really. It, it, for me, it was that I was, uh, I was just always interested in the next thing that was in front of me. And, and it's part of what I argue in the element is that you, you create your life as you go along. You don't plan. I mean, you can have plans, obviously, yeah, no, I but you rationalize it backwards and say, well, it's because of that, because of that, but actually, the whole process is one of improvisation according yeah. to what's in front of you and the opportunities you create and the ones you take, the ones you move away from. And it was that over time, uh, I realized that, and there were influences, yeah, that my, 
I knew that all my family could have passed 11 plus. They didn't. I knew that they're all bored with and dissatisfied with their education. They were. Even my education, I say even mine, because it was supposed to be a great school, I could see all kinds of limitations in it. And I was driven always by this sense that people have tremendous talents and they often don't discover them and that, and that you do create your own life. Mm. So, yeah, so, I mean, if I look back, there are these antecedents to it, but it would be an exaggeration to say that it was at the time it was because of that. It was more that I met interesting people along the way whose ideas fired me up and I thought, oh, that's interesting, I'll look for that a bit. I wanted to do a PhD when I was at college and, and I did. And, and I lighted on some interests that I thought I could focus it on. So, so looking back, I can explain it all, but looking forward, it's not like that at all, is it? Yeah, and it is so interesting that so many people try and plan out and map out, you know, the next, the next, the next, the next. And I've had so many conversations with so many people who I would say are the world considers from the outside looking in highly successful and are also deeply satisfied. Um, and very few of them have said, this is what I thought it would look like if you had asked me 20, 30 years ago. They said, and very often it's completely different, you know, not even in any way, shape or form on their radar. Um, and there is so much I you know, sort of preparation for and planning for, and this must be next and this must be next. But um, I get concerned sometimes that that closes the door to serendipity, you know, which very often holds the greatest possibility. I think it's a big, it's exactly right. It's a big lesson for, for parents, this, that um, particularly in our current systems education, that kids are being pushed down particular tracks in the expectation that this is the only road to success and, and fulfillment. And the fact is everybody's life is different. And you do, obviously we all do what we can and hope that we're doing the right thing for our kids. But often we do the wrong things. We, we assume that you know, too often, I think in America, and we assume that if you don't go to college and do an academic degree, your life is over. And it's one thing that's led to a vast surplus of law graduates in this country. Hmm. We have more lawyers in America per head of population. By the way, former lawyer, lawyer <laughs> sitting across from yeah. you. Well, that's it. I mean, it, it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, you, when you went to college, you weren't anticipating this, were you? Uh, in no way, shape or form. What were you anticipating when you went to college? Uh, you know, I honestly didn't know. I was I was the lemonade stand kid. I was always an entrepreneur. I was a little bit of a hustler. So I spent much more time actually building my first real business in college than attending class. What and was it? What was the business? It was actually sound and lighting and, and mobile disc jockey and clubs and events right. and stuff like that. Which was about the best job you could have in college. Um, <laughs> and we sold a company, you know, to, to a bunch of incoming freshmen when, uh, when yeah. we graduated. Um, so when you I knew attended, that you can sell a company like that. Who knew? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> um, so when I went to law school, for me, it was more, I knew that I just hadn't really participated in the academic side of, of my undergraduate work. And I was just really curious what I was capable of. And I kind of figured, uh, no matter what I do with that, I'll end up, you know, it'll equip me well to do something. Um, so, and I did practice for about four or five years. Um, but it became clear that it wasn't the path for me. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's starter pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com slash GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash G-L-P to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash G-L-P or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. You know, it's interesting. We're, we're you know, having this conversation in New York City and um, and that tracking starts in preschool here. You know, I remember hearing the conversations when kids are three years old about what preschool 
you know, parents are trying to, to interview their way into to set their kid up for Harvard. And you're, you're, I'm just, and, and that's just not my orientation. You know, I, I want a kid to be loving and happy and have a, a sense for what their element is, you know, like what's mm -hmm. gonna light them up. And beyond that, I don't really care a whole lot. Um, and so it's so fascinating to be in sort of the heartbeat of this place where like, this is almost the city where, you know, like the fast tracking is yeah. fierce and hard and public. And um, and just and not to not buy into it and to almost feel weird because you're you're a bit of an outlier if you don't. That's right. You're seen as eccentric. I, I remember writing about that when I uh, when I first came to L.A. where I live now. There were there was a report that came out. I, I mentioned it in one of the TED talks I gave. Uh, it was called "College Begins in Kindergarten." Mm. I think well, actually it doesn't. <laughs> kindergarten begins in kindergarten, but you know exactly what we're saying that kids are being interviewed for kindergarten at the age of three. I mean, what exactly I, I, are they looking for? Right, I, I couldn't fathom what they were actually trying to figure yeah. out. You can, you can picture these selection boards sitting there thumbing through these resumes, <laughs> these thin resumes saying, well, this is it. You know, you've been around for 36 months and this is it. This is all you've done. I mean, it's outrageous. I mean, I'm a big advocate of kindergarten. Of preschool education, but uh, this whole um, premise that life is linear, that you can plan it completely in advance, uh, and that you should, and that, that there's a single route to to the top, and it means going to the right school and then to the right college and then taking the right degree. I mean, you can see why some people would think that's true, but the evidence is everywhere that it hardly ever works out that way that people bounce off in all kinds of interesting and curious ways. For some people, it works out. You know, but it would be like, you know, picture this, if, you know, if schools were obsessed with sport, and schools should provide property for sport, but you know, if schools were just about sport, but more than that, schools were really just about baseball. That, that's, <laughs> that's what really mattered. And the whole public education system was about finding good baseball players. And that's what the selection criteria are about. And, and that if you didn't get through into the National League, you, you're just a hopeless case. And, and, and if you're not good enough at baseball, there are remedial programs in basketball and football <laughs> and swimming and golf. But right. these are really for the kids who don't make the cut, you know. And I mean, that would be absurd that in the area of sport we accept, there are multiple talents, multiple pathways, multiple ways of, uh, of gaining fulfillment and becoming a success. But we do that in we do that in education. We have a very narrow view of the mind, a very narrow view of intelligence, and the whole thing is driven by getting kids to the Ivy League. I mean, I'm from England, and there the obsession is with Oxford and Cambridge. And that's the high watermark, you know, the gold standard. And we had a secretary for education, uh, the, the last one, uh, last but one, who made a whole speech about how the government has really got to focus more and more because he thought this was being egalitarian, on getting more working class children to Oxford and Cambridge. And I thought, have you lost your mind? I mean, Oxford and Cambridge anyway admit you know, a couple of thousand people every year. Hmm. There are millions of kids. So what's going to... I mean, the whole idea is ridiculous. Right. Think it through. <laughs> what? Are we going to make it so everyone goes to Oxford and Cambridge? And, and in the absence of doing that, 
how do you explain to all these people who don't get that if that's the intention of the entire system? The fact is, the world depends upon all kinds of talents, all kinds of people living all sorts of different lives. It's what the element books are about, you know. Yeah. And I, I remember when I, I did a, a sequel called Finding Your Element, I asked people if they, if they, I do now actually in front of audience, I ask people if they're doing now what they thought they'd be doing when they were 15, and hardly anybody is, mm. particularly people in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, I tweeted about it and asked people if they could say, you know, what the course of their life had been and had they planned that. And it was just wonderful the things they came back with. You know, people say, one guy said he was, uh, you know, he'd taken a law degree, uh, but now he's a professional magician and he dabbles <laughs> in linguistics. This woman who said uh, that she'd spent her uh, first part of her life as a professional actor and now uh, she runs a Dutch cheese shop in the Scottish Highlands. <laughs> That's fantastic. Does that count? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Of course. Right. That's, Permission, that, please. <laughs> that's how that works. And and it isn't to say don't encourage people to go to college or don't make plans, but but what people become, what they do with their lives, depends on the talents they discover within themselves and the opportunities they create. And it's a much richer conception of how education should work. Because a yeah. lot of people end up feeling demeaned by their education. I just feel they didn't make the cut. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Or just bored out of their minds yeah. um, and sort of forced to go because this is what people of, you know, our status or whatever, you know, our community do. Um, I love your sort of exploration of, uh, of the word intelligence um, and, and you know, the sort of bifurcating or, or saying, you know, like, it's, it's, we tend to define intelligence one way, but it's not about, you know, like, are you intelligent? But, you know, what's your exact language? What is your intelligence? Or... Uh, I, I, I remember saying, yes, that, that, Something that people that. often, because we're obsessed with things like IQ, people think you can give a number to your intelligence. And, and so the question is, how intelligent are you? And my case is that intelligence is highly diverse. It takes all kinds of forms. So the better question is not, the question is not how intelligent are you, but how are you intelligent? Mm. What form does it take in your case? Because I, I see it all the time. You know, people who, one of my brothers I talked about in one of the books, uh, who hated academic work at school, he had every reason to hate it, it was boring, in his case with his school, wasn't the thing that interested him. But from the age of eight or nine, you could put him in front of a, a, an engine, you know, a motorcycle or a car, and he could, he could just fix it. He was like an engine whisperer. And in fact, the teachers used to bring their mopeds and their <laughs> motorbikes to the house for Derek to take a look at it when he was 11. He'd be spending all his time doing drawings, technical drawings of the inside of engines and he just got it, just understood it. And now he's that way with mobile phones, he, can just, he just knows that stuff. I could look at this thing all day long and it wouldn't make any sense to me. It's obvious, you know, I was in, um, I think it was in Austria a couple of years ago and I was talking to the, uh, it's a regional politician. Uh, I was there to give a talk at a conference and, and he asked if we could meet and we met in this I don't know, 16th, 17th century building, uh, an old castle. And this was the, the, the local office of you know, the government. And he, we're talking about this, about the diversity of intelligence. And, and he said to me, you know, but what evidence, you say this, but what evidence is there that intelligence takes many forms? I looked at him and I thought, you know, we were in this building that had been standing up for several hundred years, uh, built by masons and designed by them. We were in an oak-panelled room 
There were sitting at a beautiful carved mahogany desk. There was the latest MacBook thing on his desk. Uh, we had Mozart being piped into the room. There were beautiful paintings on the walls, hand-woven <laughs> carpets on the floor. I said, it's everywhere. Where do you think this stuff came from? It wasn't spirited in, you know, by some yeah. celestial being. People made these things and they conceived of them and they wrote that music and the people playing that music and people created the pigments that were possible, that were needed to create these paintings. And it's everywhere. If you look around outside the confines of traditional education or conventional education, we, are, we live in a world created and designed in part by people. We have extraordinary technologies and sciences and theories and languages. It's everywhere. It just happens for historical reasons and cultural reasons that our education systems have focused on a narrow sliver of all of this stuff and decided that that's the ultimate measure of all forms of achievement. Mm. And it's plainly wrong. I always feel like, you know, the stuff I write and talk about, you know, I just think, well, I'm only, only saying what should be obvious to everybody. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, so I guess the question is, why isn't it? Because you know, of the way we're educated. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like a vicious cycle, right? Um, we're sort of taught to value a certain thing, that, that thin slice of what, like, this is what matters, this is what's intelligent, and then we propagate that in the choices that we make. Well, truthfully, Jonathan, I, th I think there are a couple of, um, there are lots of things going on here, but, but, but one of them, you know, the, in a way, the, the, the answer is embedded in the problem, that, you know, that human beings, if I can speculate like this, are clearly different in some respects from the rest of life on Earth. In most respects, we're not, but clearly in some ways we are. We don't have other creatures building great cities like New York City. Uh, we don't have other creatures in some other parts of the city in their own recording studios doing this sort of thing. You know, we don't have live podcasts by dogs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we, oh, that could be coming soon. It could, it could, coming soon. <laughs> coming soon to a city near you. The reason is that as I see it, is that human beings have qualitatively different forms of intelligence from the rest of life on Earth. Uh, that we have, among other things, powerful imaginations. We can anticipate the future. We can not always predict it, but we can anticipate it. We, we can dwell in the past. And, and we have all these practical powers that we think of as creativity, which is about putting your imagination to work. Um, we live in a world of languages and ideas and theories and ideologies. We live in a world of cultural practices and artifacts. And in other words, we don't see the world directly very often. We see it through habits of mind. We see it through the concepts at our disposal, the ideas that are available to us. But over time, what happens when we live with other people uh, in, we influence each other deeply. And we, I mean, the word we have for that is culture. We create a way of being together. We create cultures. And they, they consist in certain worldviews, things that we just simply take for granted. You know, if, you, if you've lived your life in New York City, there are turns of phrase, habits of mind, mm -hmm. sensibilities that you recognize wherever you meet in New York or anywhere in the world, you think you're from New York. <laughs> I meet people from Liverpool all around the world and I can tell right away. It's partly how they speak. Of course, that's a big part of it. But there's also a look in the eye, you know, there's a kind of irreverence about them. 
We just look for people that are always dressed in black, no matter what time of year it is. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. You know you're talking to a designer when they've shaved their head and they're wearing big glasses. That's right. <laughs> dressed in black. That's right. Yeah. And it's tribal behavior. And um, and then there are these sort of metacultural practices, like things that affect entire countries. And one of them is education. Our education systems are marinated in the ideas that that form them, you know, the ideas of intelligence that we gain from the Enlightenment, ideas that have been shaped by the growth of intelligence testing, the scientific method, and the practices of organization that we got from the Industrial Revolution. I mean, schools are organized like factories still. I don't mean that, that in every respect they behave like factories, but there's things go on in schools that don't happen outside of them much, like keeping everybody by age group taking them through the day in groups of 30 and 40 mm. and doing 40 minutes of French, then 40 minutes of math. We don't do that outside schools. It's a, it's a batch production method, which gets in the way of learning very often. But we've all been through it. And so what I mean is there are powerful cultural ideas. And one of them is that intelligence is really the capacity for a certain type of academic work, that that's what smart means. And, and if you're not smart like that, then you can you maybe do some practical job. But the really smart people are the ones who work with their heads. And mm. and you see, probably to some degree, well, I, I can say it's more than probable. I know it to be the case that looking back, my feelings about that have been intensified by my own experience in special education. So I was surrounded by people who had all kinds of physical difficulties. People with cerebral palsy, people with heart conditions, people who are uh, partially sighted or blind were in my class at school, uh, deaf, kids who couldn't hear properly, um, uh, people with uh, you know, various effects of polio. It's often, I said, I said it in the element, I said in my classroom at elementary school, it was like the barroom scene from Star Wars, you know, we were just like <laughs> a whole range of people in various states of decrepitude. But we were, nobody was interested in that. We were interested in whether people were interested or not, you know, smart or not, or in particular ways. And But the thing that struck me about it was that, looking back on that, is that in, generally speaking, we, we have this rather narrow view of intelligence, which we associate with certain kind of linguistic and mathematical capabilities. And if people have problems with that, they assume that you're not very smart. Mm. And so, so, for example, there was a, a kid in our class who had cerebral palsy, he couldn't write or hold a pencil. Because the thing with that form of spasticity is that your body's fighting itself all the time. You know, to, to make a movement, you have to relax one set of muscles automatically and tense the other ones. Well, if your body's not doing that, you're constantly struggling. So just doing what we're doing now, to be able to speak involves dozens of unconscious actions, you know, relaxing and flexing muscles and you know, opening your throat and moving your tongue around. You, you can't do that consciously. You'd never get a word out if you thought about it. But if you're badly affected by cerebral palsy, as he was, you can't get your face to do that. <laughs> so it's hard to come out with articulate sentences. It's not he's not having articulate thoughts, he just couldn't get them out. And the consequence is that sometimes then you know, people would, would listen to him and think that he was, he was mentally impaired in some way because he wasn't articulate. Yeah. Now, we could, we, could, we could understand him because we were used to it. And he could write, actually, quite well by gripping the pencil in his foot. 
Hmm. I often wondered whether that was actually handwriting or not. You know, it's an interesting, <laughs> interesting theological point, isn't it? But he was actually rather good writing with his foot. But there are other people who, and it's a classic thing, if people are hard of hearing, often people would get intolerant of them and, and start speaking to them as if they're just not very smart because they, in other words, the disability creates the problem. Right, and, and it creates a public assumption that because of this disability, something in the brain is not sort of... Yes, like and, and the problem is not in the person who's coping with the problem. It's in the attitudes right. that they create around them. And and I think at the heart of that is that if you have, if, if we have a, cult, a narrow cultural idea of ability, of intellectual ability, if you have a narrow view of that, you end up with a correspondingly large conception of disability. Because hmm. you see, people can only, you think, well... It, if you can't do this, then you therefore must be less able in some respects. And so people get put into remedial programs. And my understanding of it always was that I could see it, that people had immense natural talents of other sorts that just weren't being tapped. They weren't th seen to be relevant. They weren't being tapped into. So, you know, on the one hand, he asked me, you know, what, what drives me on this? I mean, I, I still get irritated about it, more, more than irritated, really. I, I do think it's, it's not an exaggeration to say it's a human rights issue that education is meant to be the process by which we help people certainly understand the world around them, but but also understand the world within them. And it's really only when we understand more about the world within us that we can engage fully with the world around us. Mm. And if we don't enable people to dig deep into their own natural resources, if we end up giving the impression that there's nothing there to dig for, or that what they've got isn't worth very much, it's demeaning and it's disempowering and Education is meant to be the opposite of all of those things. Meant to be. Hmm. When in practice, it's, it, it was never quite conceived that way. But in my view, it, it, it should be all of that. Yeah. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So let's go there then, um, kind of shift gears um, and, and talk about 
the state of education and also some of um, what you've been writing about and sharing with uh, some of the, the ideas in your new book. And, and I love some of the case studies as well. Um, one in particular because it's a friend of mine. Um, so Mind Drive, who you, you actually lead fairly early in the book with Steve's partner, um, Linda Buckner, is a, a friend of mine. And, um, and, and I remember, and, and for those who don't know, you can read about it in the book, but um, Mind Drive is this wonderful experiential, educa experiential education program in Kansas City where they take these kids where the, the, the world basically says unteachable, unlearnable. You know, there's the way that Linda once described it to me is there's, a, there's a, a road that runs down the center of Kansas City that the locals know is murder road. And if you live on one side, you're very likely well-to-do and you're fine. If you live on the other side, your chances of getting out of high school, let alone, you know, surviving, are not great. And they take a lot of those kids from that side. And then where school, just mainstream education has kind of said, we're done. We can't, we can't do anything to help you. And created this incredible environment where kids learn math and physics and communications and all this stuff. Um, under the context of working with their hands and building a really cool electric car, you know. So when you see things like that, you know, the, the and then you see so many other kids, um, you know, it, it raises so many questions for me. One, you know, this notion of unteachable. It, I mean, what a big fiction. What a just mass, you know, is, is, that, is that an excuse because we just can't figure it out? Is it, is it just because the system is what it is and it's so heavy and so complex and so hard to change that people just don't want to have to deal with it. But when, when you see some of the examples that you share in the book, which I think was so inspiring to me to see, um, and you realize, you know, immediately one of the big, big things that jumps out at me is that there's no such thing as unteachable. There's, there's no point at which you say, okay, we give up. Mm -hmm. I, I agree entirely. I mean, the, one of the reasons for writing this book um, was that, well, you know, first, a lot of people have seen the talks I did on TED. And, um, and so naturally, if people agreed with my diagnosis of, of some of the problems, you know, they'd often say, well, so what, what's the answer to this? And I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about all that and, and not just thinking about it, but working practically. I've spent my life working with schools and school systems and school districts and governments on the transformation of education and I, was, <laughs> I remember saying in the book that a few years ago I was speaking at a, at a university in uh, in Illinois I think it was and I was there to speak to all the students and over lunch one of the faculty said to me you've been at this a long time haven't you I said what's that he said you know trying to change education I said I have yeah he said what is it seven years now I said how do you mean seven years he said you know since that TED talk <laughs> And I said, yes, but I was alive before that. You know, that was just a moment, really. And and I know a lot of people might know me through TED, but I was at TED because of all the work I'd done before I ever got to TED and since on education. And to me, it's axiomatic. You know, so people sometimes say, ask me about my theories. And I said, well, firstly, they're not mine. I stand in a long tradition of people who've been arguing for a different way of thinking about education. But secondly, they're not theories. It's what works. And so this new book, Creative Schools, I felt I had to write to show that this isn't a theory. It, 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 it's what works. That you, as you say, you take kids who in the current system are failing and are feeling that they've failed. And you change the system and they start to succeed. And the, the problems are more in the system than in the kids. 
And I often say to politicians, and I get asked, you know, politicians, was in like as we talk in America, there's a, a process going on to reauthorize this legislation, No Child Left Behind, which is founded uh, tragically on the whole process of standardization and testing. And so, you know, I, and, and one of the consequences has been it's exacerbated the, the numbers of kids who aren't graduating from school, certainly the ones who are disengaged from it. There's massive turnover of teachers in the system. Head teachers often move on after a couple of years. Um, I'm not saying it's all a mess. There are great schools. That's what the book's about. Great schools and great teachers, but, but they're often great in spite of this dominant culture of standardization, not because of it. And so, so I get politicians saying to me, how do we solve these problems of education? And part of my answer is, it's in the book, you know, stop causing them. <laughs> stop causing them. How about that? Don't do that. And it, to me, it hinges on a very important distinction you, that you're pointing to between learning and education. The fact is that kids learn voraciously. They want to learn. Babies learn. You know, they learn to speak within a couple of years in most cases. And, um, and this is a tremendous uh, capacity that human beings are born with. We're learning organisms. Education is an organized process of learning. You know, the assumption behind an education system is that there are things that kids won't learn on their own without proper assistance. They may be too complicated to learn, uh, or there's a whole cultural background that people need to be engaged with. I mean, you know, we teach kids mathematics because it's a, we're building on a huge tradition of mathematical knowledge and concepts and practices. It would be wrong to expect every newborn child to invent their own system of mathematics. I mean, why would you do that? <laughs> it can't happen. And there are cultural things we need to acquire. And also there's an assumption that there are things you wouldn't learn if it was left to your own devices. You know, there right. are things we want people to learn. But then we organize these systems to do that in such a way that it often gets in the way of learning. These rhythms of the industrial patterns. So you get kids like the ones we talk about in Kansas City who have not done well by the system, but change the system and they start to thrive. And it's no more than recognizing that if you engage kids' curiosity, if you uh, get them to work collaboratively, if you give them actual challenges to figure out, and if you respect and support them, then they behave very differently. Mm. And one of the limitations for me in this whole academic preoccupation scores is that people have come to think that academic means intelligent. And actually, academic work is a particular type of intellectual work. It's about theoretical and scholarly activity, you know, normally in language or yeah. mathematics. Well, it's a good thing to do, and I did it. I like it. I did a PhD. I was a university professor. I'm not here to knock it. But it's not for everyone. It's not better than anything else. I mean, I, I can do that. I can't perform heart surgery. You know, I, I couldn't design a spacecraft. I couldn't write an app. Uh, in the real world, there's a tremendous uh, interaction between theory and practice. And what's happening in groups like MindDrive is that they're taking practice as the leading edge. There's still a lot of theory involved. There's, there's, they've still got to work it all out. Right. They've still got to work out the electrics. They've got to apply all this stuff and to apply it. They have to understand it. But if you put practice at the leading edge, then kids who have been alienated by dry theoretical stuff suddenly come to life and they can see why it matters. And it's why the make affairs have been spreading so much across this country, why robotics competitions right. are getting people in their thousands to come and take part at the weekend because they're intriguing and practical. 
Yeah, and it's funny you bring up the maker, Farrell. So I'm um, a regular attendee with my daughter. Oh yeah. And <laughs> but it's amazing to see, you know, kids of all ages, um, and they will lose days, weeks, months. They'll work harder than they've ever worked on any, you know, like math assignment or something like that. Learning essentially the same thing they would have to learn in school, yeah. but because they're doing it with circuit boards or with you know whatever with wood or with you know the things that they have to in an applied way like you said in a practical way um they can't learn enough fast enough yeah. you know there's some there's a like a, a switch that just flips in them um so when when you're sort of looking at the universe of schools now you know i guess it, it's 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 a complex question to try and say how do we solve for this um, problem because I think it, I guess it's a, a lot of layers of problems. But what are some of the sort of like, what are the what are the big levers um, looking forward in your mind that have the potential to make you know for for if we want to invest in this um, the exponential shifts? Well, one of the core arguments in the book is that we have to personalize education, yeah. not standardize it. And what I mean by that is that kids have very different talents and interests and abilities. They're all different. How many kids have you got? I just one. Yeah. Well, you know, your child is a unique moment. Every child is a unique moment of talents and interests and abilities. If you've got two, if you have any more, you'll see that they will be completely different from each other. I mean, they'll be alike in some respects, but they'll be different. And one of the ways we get education to shift is to recognize it's about people not data and mm. kids come alive when we engage them and their interests it's what happened to me uh, it's what happened it's what happens it's not a mystery i always feel this with education that this isn't like uh, curing cancer in this case we know what works <laughs> we we know what the problem is and we know what works it's just we don't do it on a wide enough scale and the reason i focus in the book on learning initially. I mean, the chapters in the book on learning, on teaching, on yeah. uh, the roles of principals and parents. And, um, and the, the reason for that is that what I'm arguing in the book is it, it is possible to change this system. In fact, it is changing. It's a living system and it's evolving. There are reflection points here. And, but to understand it, you have to grasp what type of system it is. It's not a mechanical system. It's what theorists call a complex adaptive system. But the heart of it, if we're interested in education, is understanding how learning works and the conditions under which kids will flourish. So I'd start with that. And what, what I argue for in the book is that we should shift from these mechanistic data-driven metaphors to a more organic metaphor. It's, it's much more like gardening than engineering mm. to get kids to learn. It's about con creating conditions for growth. And I try to set out in the book, you know, what those conditions look like. But the heart of it is that, that we are dealing with, with growing, living people. And you know, every child, like you, like every adult, uh, we're all unfinished business. We, we are born with immense natural capacities and we may find them or not. But there's always this potential for growth and for learning. One of the problems uh, is, I think, that the politicians, not all of them, but too many of them, get it all back to front. They think that they can make education improve by going to some kind of command and control mentality, just telling people what to do. So around the world, you've got this standards movement going on. It's, right. uh, 
You know, I mean, education is now a global imperative, and it, it's right, it should be. But there are three big bits to education. There's the curriculum, which is what we should be teaching, teaching, which is how we aim to get people to engage, and assessment. The right way to think about this is that the, for me anyway, is that the thing that makes most difference in the quality of learning is the quality of teaching. So we should invest in teachers and their training and development and recognize that's quite a long-term business. Secondly, you need a broad curriculum, not a narrow one. And then you need forms of assessment that make that engaging and interesting, that motivate kids and reward them rather than stultify them and penalize them. Now I say that because the standards movement is dominated by standardized testing. Right. And I was looking at some figures here for the book and I find it amazing and, and people do to understand just how profitable and enormous the testing industry is. Just think about America. I mean, for example, uh, I, th I think a lot of people believe that the testing business is just a benign, supportive service that's offered by some companies in the interest of helping children do better, uh, or that it's some uh, something that educators have put together themselves. If, if you look at it comparatively, the, uh, the National Football League in America, the NFL in 2013, uh, was, in terms of revenues, was a $9 billion business. That's a big business. You know, one of the most popular sports in America. A $9 billion business. The US domestic cinema box office uh, generated revenues of about $11 billion. So that's bigger than the NFL. The education, testing and support sector uh, generated revenues of $16 billion. <laughs> the testing industry is bigger than the NFL or Hollywood. And there are several big players who dominate it. And they generate profits, not through producing instructional materials, but by generating tests. And the way they keep generating more is that they encourage more testing and more standards. The common core that's just being introduced in America is likely to cost, on one estimate at least, up to going to cost states up to $8 billion in extra tests and testing. This is like you know, an oil field for these companies. They just keep drilling new holes and pumping more revenue out. Mm. You know, this isn't about helping kids succeed only. I mean, I know a lot of people in these companies and they're often very benign. But the fact is, there's a massive profit motive, not profit motive in all of this. And the result is that kids are either being tested or being prepared to be tested. Teachers' jobs are on the line if they don't get these kids through the tests. We've seen this case in Atlanta recently where teachers have been sent to jail for finessing the system. Mm. It's, it's a malign practice and it's not necessary. It, it's not anything really to do with education. It's to do with profit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's incredibly disheartening and frustrating and it seems like there's so much machinery locked around it. But on the other hand, when, when you, know, you read um, your new book and you get exposed to some of the programs out there, it's incredibly inspiring, and, and like you said, there's it, it does feel like we're nearing this inflection point where the conversation people are getting more frustrated with yeah. what's going on. The, uh, people are getting the conversation around standards is it, there's pushback now, and it's getting more and more vocal and stronger. Um, not just on all levels, not just on you know from groups where people would say, well, but they have a, an interest in pushing back because there's money on the line. But just generally, people are feeling like something's not right here. It's it's we've tried the experiment. It's not working. Um, and then when you see all these examples that you so beautifully point out, um, it does feel like we're reaching this point where 
like you said, it's not a matter of us not knowing what works anymore. It's a matter of us saying, okay, how do we, how do we take the 1% that's working and how do we figure out how to make the transition to yeah. make that the 99%? You know, there are parallel cases here, like for example, the, uh, the drugs industry. A lot of good has come from big pharma. No question about it. Uh, we've developed some extraordinary treatments which have helped relieve all sorts of pain, discomfort and disease for people. And I am a person who benefited from it. You know, <laughs> I mean, I personally wasn't saved by the salt vaccine, but I did go on to have all these other injections and lots of people uh, were saved from a lifetime of paralysis illness because they were vaccinated. I'm not saying that the whole drug industry is, is anything other than um, something that has, has brought great benefits to humanity, no question of that. At the same time, there's a vast amount of profiteering in there as well. And uh, that in some respects, it's been a malign influence. I mean, for example, um, there are huge profits being made from antipsychotic drugs and uh, drugs for treating various forms of depression. Some people need them. There are clinical uh, cases of depression, clearly, that are different in kind from people just being down. But, you know, for the most part, there are vast profits to be made from not relieving depression, but giving people medications for depression. All sorts of areas in which drugs are being developed gratuitously and, and generating huge profits along the way. I mean, I've on a personal rant, for example, about the um, overdiagnosis of ADHD in our schools. And, you know, I'm not arguing, never have argued that there's no such thing. There are some people who do argue there's no such thing as ADHD. But more and more kids are being diagnosed with ADHD in our schools. And it, often it's on the base of, of the scantest sort of evaluation. You know, kids sit there fidgeting and staring out the window in no time at all, it seems, in some parts of the country. Somebody's going to reach for, reach for a prescription pad and put them on Adderall or Ritalin. These are multi-billion dollar profit-making drugs. And I just don't believe it. I don't, I don't believe it. And a lot of paediatricians don't believe it either that all these kids are being prescribed have got some disorder. Actually, the disorder most of them have got, I think, is childhood. They're <laughs> sitting there, you know, they're getting bored. I mean, if you sit kids down hour after hour, day after day, doing test prep, what do you expect is going to happen? So get them off their, on their feet, move them around, get them doing you know, physical education, sport, practical things, things that kids do when they're not being warehoused in schools. And a lot of these symptoms you know, disappear. But you see it too in the fast food industry. We know that the fast food industry is also contributing to a massive growth of diseases, of obesity and of diabetes. And the reason we can't just rein it all back in is because there are vast profits being made here by a few corporations who control it. Um, so when you say, how do we roll back the issues in education? I think it's, it is important to be realistic here too and say that, that this isn't just a benign landscape where, where everybody's trying to do the right thing and do good. There are massive vested interests in all of this uh, among people who are making great profits from it, uh, people who are answering favours, you know, education has become very politicised. But at its heart, we could fix this and we can fix it by giving responsibility back to actual schools and training teachers properly, which is what countries like Finland have done. And Finland is outperforming America 
on almost every measure. They started their reform movement around the same time America did, after, you know, in the, in the Reagan administration when they introduced uh, a nation at risk. That was the, the warning light. Things were not going right in American education. And it's that really that led to No Child Left Behind and, and America went down the road of standardization. Finland, meanwhile, went down the road of personalization. And it's a much better system overall. And now people say you can't compare Finland to America, but actually in terms of principles you can, in terms of what works and what doesn't. Yeah. And, and I guess that's also, you use the phrase revolution in, the, in sort of speaking about how this, you know, creating a revolution, the way the schools are, that education is shifting. And, um, and to me that implies that a huge part of this is from the ground up. And that's, and that's what we're seeing. And that's, mm -hmm. I think, where a lot of the greatest hope and the leadership is going to come from. Well, actually, the, the, the subtitle of the book in America is The Grassroots Revolution right. is Transforming Education. The, uh, the UK edition, they went for a slightly different subtitle, which is Revolutionizing Education from the ah. Ground Up. <laughs> yeah. Either way, revolution is in there at some level. Yeah, and I think it is that, in, in the sense that we have other sorts of social revolution going on. And the, in other words, that we can't fix this simply by repairing the way we do things now and making it sleeker. Uh, there's something fundamentally wrong in the uh, in the model that needs to be rethought. But the the good news it's it's all around us. Mm -hmm. And there, I say in the book, you, you have a choice. There, are, you can make changes in the system, you can make changes to the system, or you can make changes outside of the system. And a lot of the examples in the book cover all three. You know, there, there are examples of change in the system. The thing is that although I'm kind of ranting a bit about policymakers, I've worked a lot with policymakers, but but it's it's not all about them. I did a whole strategy in the UK uh, about 15 years ago with, with others on how you would have more creative schools. And the thing is, it is a complex and dynamic system and there are many points of flexion. It's not just what policymakers do. It's what school principals do. It's what parents do. It's how they behave. It's how teachers behave. And in most schools, there are habits that are not mandated. They're just customary. And you can stop it. Right now, you don't have to divide the day into 40 minutes. Nobody's telling you to do that. People just do it because they always did that. And there are schools in the book that say, well, we're not going to do that anymore. See what happens if we take, that, take, if we take subject barriers away, how would it look? So there are schools like High Tech High that have been doing that. I mean, Montessori schools have always behaved that way. So there are things people can do. It's, it's, I think I close the quote with the book with a quote from Gandhi about be the change you want to see in the world. Right. You know, it's like any social system. If you're perpetuating it, then you are the system. And if you change what you do, you change everything for the people you affect. So a lot. that's why I'm saying in the book, the revolution, don't wait for it. Don't wait for somebody to say yeah. it's okay. You know, start doing it differently. Yeah. No, I love that. Um, I want to be super respectful of your time. I think we're all a little bit long, so let's come full circle. Um, and I always wrap uh, asking the same question with everybody, which is the name of this is Good Life Project. And... And the idea is an exploration of what are the pieces of the puzzle. Um, so when I just offer that phrase to you, to live a good life, what does it mean to you? Uh, to live a good life is, um, I often make this point that, that we all live in not one world, but two. There's a, you know, there's a world that existed before we got into it. The world of other people, of, of historical events and circumstances and of of objects and things, the world that was there before you were born, the world that exists, whether or not you do. Um, 
That's a part of living a good life is, I think, to to uh, to live in the world of other people in a way that is constructive and um, and helps them become fulfilled in a way that that you know, does more good than harm to them. And certainly, that's part of my mission for education. I mean, I, I think you know, life is. I think it is clearly very short. I did an event a few years ago with the Dalai Lama who made the comment you know, that to be born at all is a miracle and I think it, it's worth remembering that. We're here pretty fleetingly, 90 years with the following wind maybe. Um, and I think if you can feel that your being on the planet has on the whole supported and helped other people and, and been um, a beneficial influence rather than a malignant one then that's one measure of having lived a good life. But there's another world that we live in too, which is uh, a world that came into being only because we did. You know, it's, it's a world of our own consciousness that's, that came into being when you did and will end when you do. And my experience of it is that you're more likely to do good in the world around you if you spend time exploring the world inside of you too, that you have a responsibility to your own fulfillment. That if, you, if your life is impelled by anger and frustration, that you're, you haven't fulfilled or tapped into your own talents, um, you're more likely to be uh, a destructive force in the world around you. But it's a balance between the two that you need to strike. I mean, it, we hear it every day on aeroplanes about put your own mask on first. And I think that is right. It's become a popular metaphor for a good reason. If you, I, the event I did with the Dalai Lama, it's called World Peace Through Personal Peace. And his, you know, the point is, you can't bring peace to the world if you're angry. And it's not a, it's not an argument for, uh, for being passive or uh, it's not an argument for being undemanding but to live a good life you have to I think feel fulfilled internally uh, as well as then aiming to do beneficial things externally. Beautiful thank you so much I really enjoyed the conversation. No oh, you too Jonathan thank you very much a real pleasure. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.